Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Intersect, a podcast dedicated to the celebration and promotion of the convergence of God, the world, and the church. My name is Matt Skolnick, and I am your host. I am also the executive director of MVP, a collection of about six dozen churches that span 16 counties in eastern Ohio. In this edition, I interview Catherine Opart. What makes this episode so exciting for me is that I was able to talk with Catherine just before she was ordained as a pastor. In fact, if you listen carefully, people were knocking on the door and trying to get her to pay attention to other duties. So I'm super thankful that she was willing to spend the time with me. Her ordination day truly was a day filled with joy and celebration. But as you listen to Catherine, you will hear a few key themes. First, you'll notice that Catherine has demonstrated a long-term desire to be open to God's call on her life. This is a lesson for all followers of Jesus. Second, Catherine has truly embraced a ministry as an expression of walking alongside of people. She calls this, from the Lutheran tradition, accompaniment. Finally, as Catherine begins her formal ministry as part of a ministry team who serves three congregations, please listen carefully to her excitement around the collaborative and team-based ministry. While many churches feel dead, Catherine sees and experiences life as she serves with others for a common goal. With that in mind, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I'm with Catherine Opart. Catherine has an exciting day today. She officially becomes a minister of word and sacrament or a pastor in the Presbyterian tradition. She graduated from seminary just a handful of months ago, is in the process of the first months of her first call. And today, as we get ready to head off into her ordination service, we just want to hear a little bit about not only her faith story and the call that she has experienced, but how she has lived out her faith in the past handful of years. Good afternoon, Catherine. How are you? Good. It sounds like we have a lot on the plate or a lot on the docket today. We do have a lot on the docket today. So we'll try to do Catherine Opart in 17 hours or less. Yeah. Starting with year number one. No, we won't go all the way back there. But if you could just start out, can you share a little bit with us about your faith story? When did you come to faith? When did you feel a call to ministry? All those types of things. Just so people have a sense of who you are. Sure. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. My grandfather was actually a Presbyterian pastor. And um, I have loved going to church my whole life. That, And in lots of ways, I didn't expect to become a pastor. But when I look back on it and how much I would look forward to being in church, it was like there's a, a lot of indicators there of seeking out leadership even as a kid of wanting to help teach kids Sunday school classes and help with children's church and volunteer at camp that there were a lot of things that that were pointing in that direction even though I didn't see it do you happen to remember the first time you served in the church so I think that 
was in Christ Presbyterian Church. I was probably in the sixth grade, and I asked uh, Miss Jenny, (laughs) Miss Jenny George, if I could help with Children's Church, that I had I had graduated out of being able to participate in it, but wanted to then help lead it. And she probably said, no, you're not allowed, Catherine. No. (laughs) What did she say? She was really excited about it. And I've seen her mentor other young kids who were excited about teaching other kids faith. There's something really special about hearing another person your own age be excited about faith. Yeah, that's wonderful. So when you started, were you an assistant like did you teach a lesson did you help them color what what would that or what did that day look like oh yeah it was so funny the there would be another parent there because I couldn't lead anything on my own right because I was 11 um but (laughs) the parents were so excited if I was helping them because they would just let me teach the lesson they they would basically stand back and just watch well here you are Catherine go ahead kind of you're in charge um and because I would ask lots of questions and try to get kids to go deeper. I think that lots of kids' curriculums are superficial and kids are capable of such deep thought if you allow them to be curious. That's very true. And actually, this is one of the reasons I'm so excited that you're going to be a pastor is because when you look at those curriculums, it is all information-based, isn't it? It's, it is. It's largely, you know, name the 12 disciples or tell us the story of this or explain this parable. And that information is important, but I think you're getting at the formation piece, yeah. which is really important. Okay, so you started, I'd say you started your call pretty young, 11 years old. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, and, and that continued, I think, as you, you went through middle school and you went through high school. I know that um, you were mm-hmm. active in your church. I know you went on various mission trips and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then you headed off to college. Can you tell us a little bit about where you went to college, why you chose to go there, and what you focused on while you were there? I went to Wittenberg University. That's in Springfield, Ohio. I studied Spanish and sociology, and I chose to go to Wittenberg because people were really genuinely kind there, and and they didn't require ACT scores, which I was like, I love that. I hate standardized tests, and so By the way, you- Catherine is brilliant. She probably would get a perfect on all those tests, <laughs> anyways. But I hate those tests. Okay, very good, Catherine. I do. So even just philosophically, I was like, yes. If you care about how I've done in in school and extracurriculars, and that's what you're basing this off of, that's what I want to go with. So I went to Wittenberg. Um, there are a Lutheran school, as you might imagine from the name, ELCA, and. I was a chapel nerd. I was in chapel probably three to four days out of the week doing one thing or another. And then I would go there to study. Or and when you nap. say doing things, do you mean like um, you were leading prayers or mm. you're changing candles or you know, what? what is your definition of doing things? So I would attend chapel. I sang in the choir. I was the manager of the music in my of in my senior year the real question is did you have the keys to the music no no okay i did not but i communicated everything i was kind of organizing it okay um so that's really when you started developing worship or help putting pieces of it together 
There was a lot of that, yeah. I became, um, every year I grew in leadership in a campus ministry called the Weaver Chapel Association, which was entirely student-led. Pastor empowered, I would say, but really student leadership oriented. And so I started off as the retreat chair and then the vice president. And then my senior year, I was the president of the organization and started to realize how encouraging people in leadership and ministry is all like I started to see the discipleship even during our team meetings and that kind of stuff of seeing, look at how we can support one another as as student leaders, that this can be part of what was fun. Like the team meetings were a great time, not a a chore. Not a chore, just not a committee meeting that you sit down, but something that you actually loved and whatnot. Now, I think you said really fast in passing, you used to sneak in there and go take a nap. Is that what you said? They had good couches. Okay. And um, people, not a lot of people went to chapel so there was this there were space lots for, of room. <laughs> so there is this space for all of the other chapel nerds i mean we would all kind of hang out there together and it was really good and we had an amazing amazing chapel pastor that she often kept her door open she was really supportive spiritually emotionally Um, and vocationally she helped me tremendously in discerning my call and she was the first person to ask me if I was considering seminary that's beautiful yeah so that real those four years even though you didn't study religion you studied sociology and you studied Spanish you were really in the middle of wrestling with what it was like to be part of the faith community as a leader yeah and it was from there that you decided to say mom dad I'm getting on a plane and I'm not coming home for a year. Kind of. <laughs> right? Okay, so tell yeah. us a little bit about that. So, well, I'm going to back up a little bit to say kind of where I came from to explore that option. So I decided to start studying Spanish because I fell in love with it while I was in high school and love different cultures. And I saw this Nelson Mandela quote in my in my teacher's room every day that said if you speak to a man in your own language you speak to his head if you speak to a man in your in his own language you speak to his heart and so I felt from that moment that I was this is now more current language at that time I was like I really want to speak to someone's heart but I realized that that was kind of my first call moment of that that was a central part of of wanting to be a human with other humans oh, was wow. to communicate to their hearts. And you said that was in class. Was that college or was that? That in was high school. high school. That was high school. That was That's amazing. And Miss Escott's class in at McKinley High School. Thank you, Miss Escott. I love her. So that was kind of the Spanish route, and I then started to look at sociology because it it felt really honest in looking at the world, and I felt like it helped me to pull back what was naturally good about humanity from all of the things that we have become as humanity. And so though a lot of people questioned me going into sociology because it is not a particularly religious uh, or 
how should I say this? There are not a ton of Christian sociologists in the Wittenberg program. Um, and I had some people challenge me of how I could reconcile being both Christian and wanting to deconstruct the world as it is. And yet I felt like when I got to deconstruct society as we see it, I could pull back and see the pieces of who we were made to be hmm. as a people and community. So while you're studying sociology, can you share one main takeaway from your years of study in sociology? Like how did it form you or shape you or change your thinking? Or what's something that you might turn back to every once in a while that is a kind of a bedrock of how you function? That is a really hard question. <laughs> it's okay. Because I learned so many things <laughs> in sociology. Have, you don't have to. I just thought there might be something there. There's this one piece that I've been thinking about a lot that is from Emile Durkheim, who wrote a lot about anomie, which is essentially a word that means chaos. And so he looked at how society responded to chaos and that for him in his context in Germany in late 1800s I think that don't quote me on that you might want to cut that out um, okay. <laughs> um, it resulted in mass suicide like just massive numbers of people committing suicide make that connection for me of, of lo feeling like they have lost meaning the world is so chaotic oh. so they removed themselves he was studying why people were committing suicide at such high rates in Germany. So they were not experiencing order. And so the feeling of lacking order, lacking purpose, lacking meaningful relationships, that, that that's what he started to look at. And I just see a lot of patterns and the kind of frantic, and I would say chaos, of what we see in the world right now. Yeah, and that goes back to one of those basic tenets of psychology about fight or flight or freeze kind of thing. And yeah. so that would just be an extreme version of the flight, right? Mm -hmm. If you're in the yeah. middle of some type of chaos and it's too much for you, you don't yeah. want to wrestle with it, you, you back out. And then that finds its ways into different parts of society when life is difficult without order or peace. Okay. Very good. I appreciate the little run through memory lane of college. And then you headed off to Mexico. Yeah. So tell us about who you went with and how you prepared yourself and what you did while you were there for that year by yourself. Yeah. So in college, I wasn't sure if I wanted to become a sociologist, an anthropologist, or a pastor. And so I decided all of those require grad school. And so I have to take some time to discern before I move forward with anything else and spend all this money to continue my studies. Which is a very wise decision. Yeah. Really, to take time and just go away and think through it. Because oftentimes yeah. we have a push from parents when you're graduating from college. Okay, we just spent tens and tens of thousands of dollars on education. Now it's time for you to get a job. And you say, no, I'm going to volunteer for a year. But it's not really just about the volunteer. It's about personal development as well. Yeah, and if I were to say it in a nicer way, it would be that I had spent my whole life studying I and I Catherine was ready to do said, something. <laughs> I think Catherine just said, I'm going to say it better than you, Matt. <laughs> no, 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 I'm I mean kidding. better than no, I had said it. It wasn't just about you know wasting money by going into different things. It was like I want to 
I want to do something. I have studied my whole life. I finally want to do something. That's right. So what are we when we graduate from college, 21, 22 years old? Something along those lines, right? Yeah. So I understand that. You're, you've been in class for long enough. It's time to get out there and experience the world. And so I applied to the Young Adults and Global Mission Program through the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America because I had heard stories about other students who had gone and had amazing experiences. And so I started to look into the program and felt really inspired by what they were doing and where they were going. And I um, at first had said, you know, I think I want to go to Argentina. I don't know anything about Argentina. I know a good bit about Mexico because a lot of the classes that I had taken about like in the Spanish department focused more on Mexican history and those kinds of things. And so I want to learn about a different part of the country, uh, part of the world. And then I was sent to Mexico because you don't get to decide that in Yagam. You're oh, sent you just, somewhere. You say, I want to go and they pull your name out of the hat. Well, they probably don't do that. They probably yeah. very thoughtful about who's going where. They were yes. very thoughtful. And you could give a preference, but you could not choose. And so I was sent to Mexico and I said, okay, I'm willing to go anywhere but Mexico City. I'm really intimidated by the idea of going to Mexico City. It's, Mexico City is not a tiny place. No, it's <laughs> enormous. I've never been in such a big city. And, um, and I was a little afraid about it because the stuff that I had heard in the news and all of these things. And well, in television shows, we kind of paint a picture that everything in Mexico is drugs and cartels and violence. and Right. Right. And so, of course, I am sent to Mexico City. And so it felt a little bit like a Jonah moment of like, I get to choose whether what kind of prophet am I going to be in this moment? You know, and what, what kind of um, servant will I be? And so, but you did not I, choose the I big said, fish. Yes. I did not. Okay. I went, you went to Mexico there. City. Not kicking and screaming. A lot yeah. of excitement, I remember. And I was really excited. And I found such a warm, welcoming place there. Nothing like I had built it up to be in my fears. And it ended up being so profound that part of my job there was to welcome people seeking asylum as a foreigner myself and so to give a little more context i was working at a refugee resettlement organization called casa refugiados and i worked in the integration department which meant that i helped people to find jobs educate them about their labor rights help them to find education if they wanted it and other related things but that was the emphasis and it was absolutely wonderful one of my favorite parts of that job was helping get ready for these workshops about labor rights. And I would get to go up to everyone and serve them coffee and watch them pass a bowl of sugar around and take obscene amounts of sugar into these <laughs> tiny cups of instant coffee. The spoon just stood up in the air. Kind of. Yeah. Um, but there was that was one of my favorite parts of wondering, you know, how often of just what a blessing it felt like to me to get to welcome other people in a country that is not my own, but has welcomed me. And so when you did that, I'm sure you saw dozens or hundreds of people every week who were coming through. Mm. Yeah, I was there during the caravans of 
2018-2019. So when I first started, I had about two months of uh, what they would considered normal at the time of probably uh, 50 to 100 people a week coming and uh, soliciting asylum in Mexico City. And then when the caravans came, we were seeing 100 to 200 people a day. Oh, wow, Catherine. So it was, it just grew exponentially. And so I got to see that firsthand. Mentally, spiritually, physically exhausting. Yes. So I started to take my own spiritual self care very seriously at that time and found a lot of refuge in the Ignatian examine and needing to just process the day. So much had happened. I felt like I couldn't move forward with the day until I had given it to God in some form because it there was just so much so much pain and so much um so you were saying hundreds of people a day and you were there for a year yeah so that is a very large number of people it is <laughs> considering the very large number number of people can you think of any particular stories or particular families or particular individuals that their story or their person just resonated with you or you connected with them somehow on a deeper level Yeah, there was a woman from Uganda. Lots of people thought, or there's a generalization, that only people from Central America were coming into Mexico, which is not true. Very interesting point. People from all over the world seek asylum in Mexico City um, and in Mexico in general. But this one woman from Uganda told me that the rumor is in Uganda that if you want to seek asylum somewhere you go to Mexico because they love immigrants Mm. and that to me was so striking of just really changing the whole narrative for me of immigration globally and decentering the United States from the narrative and really seeing Mexico in all of its complexity as a place where there are people who seek refuge from Mexico it to other places and yet there are so many people for whom Mexico is their place of refuge and there's something so honest and beautiful about that and so she and I um, got to know each other and she spoke English and so I was one of the primary people to help her in her process Um, and so how long would have you spent with her? A couple days? Or was she there with you for like a week or just one day? Or how, how does that process work? So the, this organization modeled every or did everything through the model of accompaniment. So the idea is that from day one where you solicit asylum to being granted your refugee status or citizenship status if you continued down that path they would walk with you through every part of that process legally um with employment with psychological support so that's with a all long-term sorts of relationship yeah so i didn't get to be there for that whole sure. time i was in particular i was helpful to her in in the beginning um and in finding work um 
It's a wonderful lesson. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit from your time in Mexico. And I know you went back the following year to provide care for caregivers and also to continue to reach out to the, the immigrant population. With that being said, as you are about to enter into official ministry as a pastor, how has your experience overseas with the immigrants influenced your thought patterns and your practices as a pastor in local churches working in a ministry team? Being in Mexico taught me so much about being relationship-oriented. That since everything was about the person, walking with them, living with them, accompanying them, it was not about time. It was not even about progress. It was just about being with each other. And that took a long time to sink in because in the U.S. we are very time-oriented and accomplishment, progress-oriented people of if you're doing something, you have to tell me when it's going to be done and have something to show me Speaking of which, we're going to an ordination service here, and it begins at 4 p.m. sharp, right? It does. But if you were in Mexico City, you know, you could start at 3.30 or start at 4.30 or kind of sing some songs for an hour and then start, and it's how life... There is a a beauty of how people live in different parts of the world. Yeah. I understand that. So I will say... Um, That experience has made me late to most meetings as I've started this new job. I'm usually running late. What if you aren't late? What if you are right on time for people? Well, and that's another way of looking at it, that what I have found is that I am really practicing being fully present to the person in front of me. And so I find that that takes time. And so i'm a lot less aware of my watch if i'm looking at the person in front of me so i have found that to already be nurturing deep relationships with different congregation members and i haven't had anyone complain about my tardiness yet so (laughs) that's a good sign this is a good sign um but i would say that it has impacted me in in the sense that I want to explore a vision together rather than tell them what to do. And I want to empower and encourage them to participate in making that happen rather than me being the whole energy and force for movement. That makes perfect sense. As you're speaking, I I was reminded that as humans, our humanity is really defined not just simply biologically but it's it's defined in relationship to other people right so it's only in our relationship to others that we have a sense of self we're not these isolated beings and of course when we think about the gospel when we think about the inner relationship and the trinity all of the healing that the scriptures speak of are really rooted in relationships so my question for you is have you given thought about how you teach that undivided presence 
how do you teach that being fully present to somebody wherever you are is the heart of the gospel? So the first thing that comes to mind is prayer, which I don't know is the right starting place for everyone, but I think especially in the church, that's a good place to begin. I've been thinking a lot about how much Christians often think about prayer as us speaking to God, but how much do we just sit and seek out the presence of God or listen for God in that time? So that can be a really powerful meditation and practice of seeking to be present to ourselves and to God. I think that on a human-to-human level, it just takes practice over time that there's a sense of you look at the person in your in their eyes and you are on their schedule not on your own that that you become present in a different way when you don't have an agenda that is very true as i'm thinking through this the art of prayer uh, of being silent before god for many people is really hard because our minds race, our minds run. We want to think about shopping lists or what chores we have to do or where we have to be. And I never thought about that as a discipline of learning how to be present for others, right? Because others, you have very concrete clues. We can see each other in the eyes. We can listen to one another's voices audibly. Um, and so, so that's really a beautiful first step. I like that. Yeah, I think part of what feels like an important practice in, in using prayer to learn the practice of accompaniment and presence is to just be totally open to something that is not you. That when we do, when and not that you ever perfect this as a human being in prayer, right? I don't know that we can ever pray perfectly and experience God's presence perfectly. But I have found that for myself, if I can come into a place of genuine openness where I'm not thinking about all those lists and all of the noise that happens in my mind, that or, I Or even able... the noise that somebody else might provide that you're trying to be open to, right. right? Because people bring their own noise into that circumstance. Yeah. But at least for me, prayer has been the thing that has really taught me when I'm trying to make something happen in a relationship versus when I am just open to a person in that relationship. And that openness, again, is really at the heart of the gospel. You know, God is open to us. God is, is, is not hidden. God doesn't run away from us. And, and that's what we try to live in. It's very impressive mm -hmm. that you have these practices, this outlook of life, I'm so thankful that you've been able to pick this up in Mexico. I'm thankful that you're bringing it into the church here in the United States. Let's shift and talk a little bit about your first call. You didn't choose or discern a typical first call, and you, being a, a talented person, would have had many options. Why in the world did you choose this crazy thing called the MV partnership between three congregations, two are in the city, one is in the country, you have a lead um, pastor who works half-time, you, you have another um, partners who 
come in and they focus elsewhere in, in excuse me they focus on kind of the external piece the outreach why did you choose this crazy thing certainly your parents your friends your seminary professors everyone was like Catherine this is crazy what are you doing okay there were those responses <laughs> there definitely were <laughs> um so I I came to this through a lot of discernment. I mean, I applied and interviewed with, I don't even remember how many churches of all different sizes in all different parts of the country. And none of them felt quite right. And I started to hear a lot of the same stuff of feeling like they were in a rut in ministry and didn't know where to go. And I, I even had a church tell me that flat out and said they're sorry they felt like this interview with me was a waste of time and that they need to know they need to figure out what they want and so did you tell them you need to figure out what you want or no, did they you, claimed they that. claimed that really yeah one person okay. in particular gave me this message but she was wow. speaking on behalf of the rest of their team and I said wow that the same week that I got that follow-up call was the same week that I met with elders from the three congregations where we all sat around a table and I heard all of this enthusiasm about what collaborative ministry could be between these three churches. And the, even just the enthusiasm was like, this is unique. And the openness and interest in collaborating rather than competing felt unique. And how sad is that? It is. It is <laughs> right? Sad. I mean, yeah. But that is the, the typical mindset that a, a lot of churches we struggle with. We, and I was frustrated with some of the interviews at big churches because they acted like they were doing everything per perfectly and so weren't interested in changing anything because they already were the ideal that everyone wants to be the big program church. I'm so thankful that you're so wise, Catherine. <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful insight. Every, some other people would have been like, wow, this place is great. I'm going to jump in with two feet. Well, so this was the only through that. interview where I heard other people wondering what God was doing in their midst. And so I started to look more and more seriously at being a part of it. Um, and I love, I love collaboration. I think that the church should be collaborative. We have so much competition in the United States and in the world. And I would love for the church to be a point of, of collaboration and sharing and innovation and you know all of these different words come to mind you know it's so interesting about that right now there is a push there's a book out there and forgive me i don't remember the person who wrote it is called part-time is enough and it's basically designed to give comfort to churches who have to go from a full-time pastor to a part-time pastor and i understand that that or I understand that dynamic and I understand that need from time to time. But as we look at the scriptures in terms of the teaching of the body of Christ, I don't think that that direction highlights the need or the, the idea that we are in this together. 
So I don't think any one pastor has the ability to do everything that needs to be done. And then, of course, if we make them half-time or part-time, you know, that's just even harder on an individual. So you're a part of a team. You're part of what we can consider a, a body of Christ in that team. Where do you see your main role, your main gifting? Um, to use Paul's language, are you the ear? Are you the hand? Are you the foot? What are you? Well, I'll start by saying that I am the pastor for spiritual formation and care. She gave the very official answer. And so, Tom, if you're listening, you should be proud. Okay, now let's get to the real stuff. No, I understand that that, that, that is a key of who you are. I'm just teasing. I, I understand wanting to name where I would fit in the body. That is challenging for me to say. I guess this sounds really sappy, but one of my goals is to help people to feel connected in mind, body, and spirit. And so whatever that would mean, (laughs) I think that that's part of the goal, that they would see God truly in their individual lives and from that feel inspired to reach out to others. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that connecting piece, perhaps that's hands, right? You know, hands kind of reach out and pull people together, reach out and kind of make it together. So maybe you're the hand. I'm not sure. Yeah. But that's, that's one way to think about it. I know we have to get going here in a couple minutes, but I have a couple final questions before we head off to your ordination. When we consider your ordination and your ministry that's right around the corner here, what is your biggest hope or your biggest dream as you look forward to some years of ministry? I think helping to develop a vocabulary to identify how God is at work in the world today Hmm. is a big dream that I have, that as Presbyterians, we're often very hesitant to name God at work in the world, which comes from, I think, often a wise place of not wanting to jump to conclusions and say that everything that happens is God's will, because I would certainly not go that far. And yet I think that part of the Christian life is to seek out what God is doing in the world and try to participate in it. And so that's the big overarching dream for me. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely beautiful. And I think that is exactly what we need as churches, whether we're Presbyterian or Lutheran or non-denominational or you name it, Catholic. We are in a period of history where we have to be much more intentional about what it is like to to serve and make those connections in the world and to have that public voice, um, to have that public presence and whatnot. One final question before we go. Biggest challenges for the church that you see in the next 10, 20 years or so? I think that the biggest challenge for the church is a mentality of scarcity that they look at what they have, how many years they think the church has left, how many years they think they personally have left, how able they feel, 
um, or even just how they are seeing their communities evolve. That if they can start to look at that with abundance, there's a mm. lot of hope. But if we continue to look at everything through a lens of scarcity, then the world is just as scary as they expect it no to be. No doubt. And the idea that we had to name that over and over and over again, you know, so scarcity money, God's got a lot of money. How many times do we have to say that? Or, you know, um, you might say, someone might say, I only have a few years left. Well, God has eternal life. You know, there's there's always these these counterpoints to our, our points of scarcity. And so... Yeah. Um, it's not always easy to name, but we have to name them over and over and over again. And then sometimes it hits. Sometimes people realize that, oh, my goodness, you're right. It's not about um, just the, the pennies. Yeah. Well, they are calling you into the other room. Um, I, I know that you are very busy. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I think maybe later on I'm going to try to circle back to you and to your team. Okay. And that would be kind of fun to, to talk to you. But can we pray before you go? That'd be great. Let's pray. Oh, merciful, gracious God, I thank you so much for Catherine. Thank you for her wisdom, for her faith, for all the ways that she serves. Lord, we ask that as she heads off into this ordination service, that your spirit would just pour over her heart, her mind, her body, her soul, over her ministry, over her relationships. And Lord, we ask that as she officially starts her ministry as a pastor today, that you would grant fruit for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, we give thanks. Amen. Amen. As you can tell, Catherine is a strong pastor, and she will grow to be even stronger over the years. As we celebrate God's call on her life, I want to highlight the ministry team that she is a member of. For us, this design is a model to help the church transition into a new era. It's not the only model. For the first part of my official ministry, I was a solo pastor in a small church. I found it to be incredibly lonely. Often I would question, why did Jesus send two disciples to get a donkey and yet he sent only one donkey, meaning me, to serve a struggling church? I have come to fully reject the solo pastor model. The solo pastor model ignores that Jesus never sent disciples by themselves. Likewise, early leaders like Paul always went with others. Paul was with people like Barnabas, John Mark, Silas. The solo pastor model also runs roughshod over the teachings about the body of Christ. We each have our place to serve. For me, this lesson applies not only to the church as a whole, but also to a pastoral team. No single pastor has all of the giftings that are needed to serve mature, and mobilize a local congregation. Catherine is part of what we call the MV Partnership. As I work with dozens of churches and reflect on my own ministry as a pastor, it is clear to me that every congregation needs at least three types of pastoral leaders today. In future conversations, I will unfold these types of leaders with others. For now, I will just name them. Number one, I think every congregation needs someone who can help align the church leadership and the congregation as a whole to the mission of the church, and at the same time, lead through difficult decisions. Number two, I think every church needs a spiritual shepherd who can tend to and nurture their people. 
but one who also spurs the congregation along to good deeds. And number three, I think it is essential that every local congregation has someone to help them actively engage their region with the love of Christ and provide ministry flows that help people go from the crowds to being a vital part of a local Christian community. As I have shared, my call is to develop, train, and fund the next generation of Christian leaders. If you want to bless the church by helping to train and send these types of leaders, please visit www.intersectpodcast.org. And as always, if you want to reach out to me, please email me at matt, M-A-T-T, at intersectpodcast.org. Blessings. Let's talk soon.